1: What's good, Internet? I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and you are listening to a special Waypoint Radio interview. Uh, This week as part of our ongoing 101 series on 1997 Sid Meier's Gettysburg, I'm talking to BitReactor's Greg Forch, an artist on the game and subsequently uh, a longtime art director at Firaxis. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Glad to be here. Uh, So before we get into Sid's Gettysburg specifically, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about your career. Uh, How did you end up getting into games art and what led you to being on the ground floor at for
2: So I uh, went to art school, uh, Maryland Institute down the street and um, spent four years there, learned to paint, learned to draw, didn't turn a computer on, had no idea uh, what I was getting into. And I stumbled into an internship opportunity at uh, micropro software. And so uh, they were up the street and uh, I had done some freelance illustration, kind of liked doing that, but it was a little repetitive and I uh, wasn't really sure I wanted to keep doing that. So I thought I'd check out something else. Um, and I stumbled into MicroPros one day and um, they happened to be hiring interns. And so I came on and I spent uh, my second semester of my senior year, just making art, figuring out how to turn the computer on. Literally, <laughs> um, back then it was like a 386 with like a stack of floppy disks, right? And so uh, I remember my first day. I actually had to get somebody to like, "How do I how do I actually turn this computer on?" Because uh, you know they had to, like you had to turn everything on the back, and it was like the hard drives turned on mm-hmm, separately mm-hmm. Or, or disk drives, I should say. And so, um, so yeah, so I spent uh, about two years there, kind of starting to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And, you know, it was supposed to be a pit stop. I was going to like, you know, work, work in games, make some money, then go out on my terrific freelance career. Right. Um, As an editorial illustrator. Um, And the more I did it, the more I liked it. And the more I was like, this is kind of like a real job, right? Like it's, it's, it's like illustration, but I don't have to bill anybody. I don't have to worry about my healthcare. Um, And so it was a really great time to just kind of like, I just get paid to make art. Um, and so, uh, it was, everything was so new back then. Uh, it was all 2d, we were moving to 3d, um, you know, CD ROMs were like a new thing. <laughs> we were still printing on floppy disks, um, when I started there. And so, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a crazy time in the industry. Lots of startups started in that period of time, uh, and spooled up. Um, but yeah, my time at Microprose was fantastic. And that's where I figured out who Sid Meier was. I didn't know who he was in the first place. I was like, kind of walked by. I was like, who's this guy with this giant office? Right. And then I realized, uh, just how, how special Sid was, um, and how brilliant he was. And, um, you know, uh, then, then eventually, uh, Firaxis spun off. And, uh, I was one of the first, uh, few artists that they asked to come join them. So, and my actual interview at Firaxis was actually with Sid, which was, which was pretty funny. So, um, it was probably the, uh, the easiest interview ever. <laughs> cause cause Sid was just kind of like, you know, here you want a job here. And I said, that would be great. And he's like, we're done. So um it was a pretty easy, a pretty easy interview with him. And um yeah, it was a great time. Was, well, they'd uh, already
1: sort of tapped you to let you know about the opportunity, right? Like they wanted you to come from Microprose.
2: Well, I kind of knew who everybody was involved. And so mm-hmm. when I saw the opportunity to go over there, it was it was a it was a pretty quick phone call. And um Sid was able to just sit down and say, you know, everybody already knows you. Do you, do you want a job? And I was like, sure. And that was literally the the conversation. It was, it was, it was about 30 seconds and they showed me around the office space, which was a, they were um, subletting a little, a little space till we moved into an actual office uh, several months later.
1: So, and we're going to talk a lot about the period of time where Gettysburg is being developed, but uh, you know, I do know that after Gettysburg Things really start changing a lot, uh, both for Firaxis, and you already alluded to how games technology is advancing. Uh, uh, to me, it always feels like the late 90s and the 2000s, everything starts moving at a gallop. Uh, so, you know, after Alpha Centauri comes out, uh, Firaxis eventually ends up with 2K Games and Back on Civilization. Uh, there's some remakes of some older Uh, micro games like pirates, uh, and then obviously XCOM and Civ five really kind of change what we expect from the studio, not just in terms of production values, but, uh, also the kinds of games, uh, that for, for access makes. Um, how did your role end up shifting over there, uh, across those years with like the studio size changing and technology changing? Uh, what, what did you come in to do? And then what, what, how did it evolve?
2: Yeah. So it's funny when you, when I first started there, um, all of our business cards were artist animator, right? Um, And I'm enough of an animator that I should be banned from animating. Um, I'm, you know, dangerous with it. Um, And it's really not my thing. I'm great at talking about it. I'm great at evaluating it, but you don't want me doing it. Um, But back then everybody did everything. Right. And so there were six artists, uh, five of them on, on Gettysburg. And that included the art director, and we had one guy, Mike Bazell, who was working on Alpha Centauri um, by himself with Brian Reynolds uh, while we were doing Gettysburg. And Gettysburg was that was an eleven month game. Like if I remember right, the the folder on the network we started eleven months from start to finish. Um, and so um, it was a real quick dev cycle. And back then, you could make games that fast, right? Um, with smaller teams, it was just easier. Um, but yeah, when I started, you know, you just did everything. And then as I went through my career, um, you know, I would do some UI on something. I do movies on another thing. I do environment modeling, character modeling. You know, it wasn't like I just bounced around, but I did like significant chunks on each project. And so um, as we got toward railroads um, was what I would say was like my first real like art director job. Um I had this background of having understood all the different pipelines, right, and having having done all the different parts of the game and how they related to design and code. And so, um I kind of naturally fell into that that more the the big picture part, right? Um and where you get to that point where you're not as interested in making another tree as you are as like what does the forest look like? Um and for me that was that was the big shift and and having a team of people making really cool stuff instead of just me making cool stuff and kind of getting to see that team grow. And so Railroads was that sort of, you know, A, that was probably the last like really quick game I did. Like I think that was probably about maybe like an 18-month development cycle um, from start to finish because um, we were working on um, CivRev at the time mm-hmm. as well. We had sort of gone – that was where we kind of really split the two pro two legit kind of projects sort of happening uh, at the same time. Um, and, you know, I learned a whole lot on railroads, uh, mainly with the speed of the project, how to like, kind of let go of some of the control and like, you know, like other people have to make stuff and the difference between, you know, what's good and what I would have done. Right. Like that, yeah. that other people can make cool stuff. And just cause it's not exactly what I had in mind doesn't mean that it's not good. Um, and so the speed of that game kind of taught me a lot about development and, uh, and, uh, you know, how to work with a, a slightly bigger team, of course, at that point. Um, and then at that point, once once uh, Civ Rev finished, um, that's when we really forked into Civ 5 development and XCOM at exactly the same time. So we were, we were on a parallel track at that point with two full teams. We literally divided the teams almost kickball style, right? It was like we were, myself and the other art director, Dorian Newcomb uh, on Civ, we actually went through and sort of I'm going to take this guy and he picked that guy. And we just kind of divided the team up based on what we needed. So that was kind of how we got into those two. Like that's where Civ 5 and XCOM sort of split. We got into much larger, a, a much larger for what we were used to, but larger teams where, um, you know, the, the internal art team was maybe about 20 to 25 on XCOM 1 on EU. So um so that was where we started to get into to a very different game where we were really trying to um, push some boundaries uh, from a presentation perspective. That, that's always sort of was my thing that I was pretty excited about was how to how to kind of bend these games.
1: Does it just continue to grow? I think when I talk about like two friends that uh, people who work at like uh, studios who make AAA action games, for instance, the the trajectory always seems to be the amount of people working on particularly like uh, art assets and such, but animation, everything just keeps going up and up. Uh, did it ever like level off at a certain point for access or does like XCOM two like explode compared to XCOM one? And like I, I, I'm curious if, if it's just constant uh, growth in terms of uh, amount of resources and, and people being pointed uh, at at a game in each of these departments.
2: Well, I think it, 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 it was always, it's always very measured, whether, whether it was at Fraxis or Microprose or here at Bitreactor, same thing. Like it's a measured growth. Um, you want to kind of look at, you know, what's the return on it? Like, are you really going to invest time in this thing? And if you are like, what are we going to get out of it? Um, I, I think, you know, the big thing, uh, for, for me was always trying to convince people that, um, turn-based strategy games kind of get left behind by consoles, right? Like, you know. Uh, you you couldn't fit the UI on a screen. It didn't blend easily to a console and shooters did. And so shooters took off and, you know, strategy games and turn-based games kind of got pushed to the side a little bit. Um, and, and even to the point where you'd hear like, you know, oh, well, graphics don't matter. That's bull. I mean, they, that's absolute bull. They, they absolutely do matter. Everybody that plays a game cares how it looks. You know, it's gotta be fun of course. Um, but there's no reason why like those games, um, can't be more immersive, can't be prettier, can't I mean I've said this before to a lot of people, but it's it's a it's a beat like a dead horse. But like the you know those games now, like there's no reason. Like the 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 narrative being important and that immersion, you can do so much more storytelling in a game like like Civ or XCOM or um uh even or Gettysburg actually, you know, if you if you reimagined it I think today where where um the players used to you kind of taking control the pace is more measured it's not frantic and so you can tell deeper stories you can have better visuals the idea that those games shouldn't have better visuals is just is completely bogus um i just think nobody's ever asked enough questions about it right um and that was kind of how we went into xcom was was that idea of like what is what is the thing we can really improve here and the, and it was the presentation out of the gate um trying to make uh the the player feel more immersed at first like you don't start in a geoscape right like you you kind of want to do things where um you get the player's attention you grab them you breadcrumb out some tutorial stuff you you lead them into it in a way you you bury a lot of the 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 crazy walls of text in narrative moments um and dialogue that that's more immersive and so um and I just think we just barely scratched the surface on those that that kind of game um but yeah, and, and thinking back about Gettysburg, it's the same sort of thing. It was a much slower pace. You had moments where you were waiting for your soldiers to march across the mm-hmm. battlefield. You would set a waypoint, you know, um again, if you did that game now, I think there's ways to do it that would make the game feel uh, way more uh immersive and 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 certainly uh deeper uh for of a player experience where you're you're not quite as disconnected.
1: Um so obviously you've just founded a new studio and uh, you know, maybe that does lead us back to Gettysburg and the early days of Fraxis a bit, uh, because I feel like starting a new company, it's, it's always a risk, but at least in terms of how people like talk about the market now versus like the mid nineties, it certainly feels like it's a bigger risk in, in 22 than it was back then. But I, I'm curious, like how you see the landscape and how you're experiencing those differences in the industry, especially like now that you are, you you're the guy in charge, not the person interviewing to change jobs and move to the new studio.
2: Yeah, no, it's a you know it's hard to hard to imagine back when I was an intern, right? Like I was the guy getting in trouble all the time. To now, the guy who's hopefully not the guy getting in trouble all the time. But um, but no, it's uh it's it's definitely different. Um, you know, again, you could pull off a game with a so much smaller. With a much smaller team and a much smaller investment, right? Um, A lot less risk. Um, But now you you, look at games where you're, you know, in order to kind of ante up, you've got to you've got to have enough staff to do it right, to do it justice. Um, Certainly, if you're making, you know, a Star Wars game, right? You've got to you've got to you don't want to be the guy that lets down that franchise. You got to you 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 got to live up to the legacy. Um, And so uh, it definitely is a little more pressure, but, um, and it's and certainly a bigger risk in some ways, but in some ways too, it's the, the same reward. You know, when we were making Gettysburg, um, that was probably the most magical dev cycle I've ever had. Right. Like we were, we were a small team. Everybody picked up shovels. Everybody did, did a little bit of everything. I mean, I did terrain, I did UI, I did, did a lot of things wrong. <laughs> um, uh, And so I got my, my feet wet doing a lot of stuff there, but We'd play the game every day, right? Like it was a culture of of having fun, right? So we would we'd uh we'd we'd log on and we'd all play multiplayer games of Gettysburg. And I was also, by the way, awful. Um, by far the worst person. And uh my friend Dave, he'd call me up on the intercom and be like, you know, get your Confederate money ready, right? And we'd we'd dive into the game a game. And um I remember that I I at the end of the 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 dev cycle, um the present studio, uh, Jeff Briggs, he called me into his office, and everybody's on vacation. And I just come from Microprose, where people were getting laid off, and um, you know, whenever you got called into an office, it was always a bad thing. So he rolls me into his office, and he says, "You know, shut the door." And I was like, "I don't really want to." Oh, like, he's he like, "Shut the door." And and Jeff, at that time, I'm 24, and Jeff looks like Goldberg the wrestler, right? Like he's you know, intimidating guy. Um, and so he's like, just shut the door. I was like, I shut the door. He's like, can we have a seat? And I was like, no. He's like, sit down. <laughs> so I sat down and he hands me a letter and I'm, and I'm just looking at it. And he's like, are you going to open it? And I was like, I don't really want to. <laughs> and I thought for sure it was like, you were playing the game. You were screwing around, like, you know, it's time for you to go. And um, I opened it and it was a little bonus check. And it, by far not the largest check at all that I've ever gotten, probably the, one of the smallest. Um, but it's the one that I remember the most and it was the most important. And you said, thanks for playing the game and doing more than what we asked you to do. Um, and being a part of the team. And so, um, that sort of taught me a lot about, uh, the kind of studio and the kind of environment that I wanted. Um, and what I always wanted to kind of work with, um, and what I thought, you know, like was, was a long part of my career. Um, and then now what I get to make here is the same sort of investment in, and in people and, um, and that kind of culture where it's, a you know, we're enjoying ourselves and, and you've got to kind of have some fun to make fun. Um, so yeah, but that was, that was, that was my Gettysburg experience. I thought for sure I was going to get laid off after the game ship. Um, but, but yeah, ended up being a pretty nice story.
1: Um, that's great to hear. Cause you know, you were actually one of the first people I thought of when I was, when I was pitching, uh, to other people at Waypoint, the idea of going back and, and playing Gettysburg for our one one series. Uh, and it's because I remember, you made you made a similar remark to me uh, when I interviewed you for PC Power Plays, who I was working for back then, uh, mm-hmm. back at the XCOM reveal event in New York, okay. uh, yeah, in yeah, like yeah, 2010. Yeah. yeah and uh we've been talking about like just you know various for games and and you mentioned back then that actually like Gettysburg was maybe the project you were happiest with, and that mm-hmm. that caught me by surprise because you know i, I think you can say foraxis has done a lot of beautiful and and stylish games before and after um and yeah i I recall you saying that like. Just what you just what you mentioned, which is like a magical production cycle that uh, Mm -hmm. what you delivered was really in line with the concepts and goals that you and the team sort of set out with. And I'm uh, I'm curious, like what because I think there's a lot of projects people can come back, can can step back when it's done and say, okay, well, the final results look great. I'm very happy with it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean they feel good about the project. Yep. And I'm curious, like, what makes a Gettysburg special versus something where like you come out being able to show great work, but you're just not happy with it? What sets Gettysburg apart?
2: I think again, it was like that that team mentality, right? Like, I think a lot of a lot of it really fell back to that. Where uh, again, every just picked up shovels. Like we did all different yeah. stuff. It was everybody was sort of T shaped. You know, it wasn't like anybody had one specialty. I mean, it was 12 people making the game. So it was, you know, there was the difference between that and Microprose where there was like 25 artists at Microprose and me, again, literally not knowing how to turn on the computer. Um, Like, I'm not sure if I'm proud of that or embarrassed by that, but I didn't know how to turn on the computer. Um, Hopefully that made me a better artist. But um, there was nowhere to hide, you know, like the fear of going to Fraxis, like while it was invigorating and cool because like, man, I'm going to learn all this stuff. But it was like, man, if I don't know this. I got to figure it out and there was still a lot, you know, tears in my career I didn't know. And so um as a team, it was it was one of the most uh fun like team bonding experiences ever. Like we would just it was literally every day we played the game and we'd have, you know, water cooler stories and everybody usually be laughing about how bad I was. Um but um to the point where they would like put me in the middle cuz there was some game balancing stuff where like if you were better than the other person. Like, oh, like I man. was always, a, so, so, so you yeah, were their deeply average I was, player. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Brian, Brian Reynolds was always like, Greg's in the middle, like Greg, Greg, we're gonna put this is Greg in the middle. So he gets Sid, you know, or something like that. So, but, um, but we had a, we had a really great time doing that. And, and at the end of it, you know, you felt like you, you made something together with a really special group of people that were all kind of in it together. It wasn't, it, it it wasn't a lot of game companies talk about family, right? Yeah. And we I was just talking about this with another uh guy that I work with where it, it's more about team. Um, you know, cause cause families can let you down, but teammates generally don't. And it's like everybody has a responsibility to each other, which is a little bit different than a family unit. And um when I think back about the difference in that and and what that experience was, that that was that was much closer to just the sort of team atmosphere of everybody just pulling everybody together and and just picking it up and and getting it done. I mean, we, we again we made the game in eleven months. Um, we remade all the art in three months because when we came back from E3, we changed resolutions. We went from six forty by four eighty to eight hundred by six hundred. Um, and and uh, novice Greg was too stupid to remember to realize that he should have made the art a size up. So I had to rem- remake all the uh, oh, UI man. by hand. Um <laughs> at a higher resolution, um but um but so you know, it was just one of those projects where we all just kind of um, you know we, we pulled together and we made stuff and it and it also, you know, thinking back you know so much about crunch and that sort of thing, uh crunch culture, it, it was different back then where we all we all spent time to make our stuff better, not because we weren't scheduled right but because we just wanted to, we were excited about what we were doing and we wanted to do some more stuff. Um, it, it was a very different time back then making games. Um, and I would say, you know, like, you know, if I've got two games in me that were magical like that, uh, Enemy Unknown was the other one too. Like it was, it was, the, it was the same sort of thing when I, when I look back on it and I think, you know, wow, that game was just really special. Um, and just diff- like at the end of the day, um, it just felt like stars aligned. Um, and with uh with Gettysburg, it was a little bit different of a star alignment. It was, it was a really fun process that just everything fell together in the end. Um uh, yeah.
1: You know, I always feel like because this this is the other thing, like just in terms of the way the the timing works out, like I always feel like early for had to be an absolutely ridiculous place to work because it's mm-hmm. Like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this has to be, like, one of the last times you're going to get a trio like Sid Meier, Brian Reynolds, and Jeff Briggs all kind of actively working as designers on a game before they all get pulled into different forms of management uh, as sort of, like, that's their full-time role. And... You know, in the, you know, in the scenario selector uh, in Gettysburg, they sort of highlight the one like, hey, this is the in-house test uh, scenario. This is the best one. Use this. Um, and I'm curious because it sounds fun, but also intimidating as hell on on two levels. One is that, like, Brian Reynolds is a notorious shark uh, when it comes to any sort of competitive game. Um, just <laughs> just an absolute monster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I mean, I, like for me, uh, these guys are generational stars. Uh, you know, yep. these are, you know, on the, uh, you know, you know, they are some of the, uh, hall of famers, uh, in the strategy space. But that's cause, you know, I'm a kid growing up playing their games, uh, and coming to the space when, when they're all pretty senior. I'm curious. How it was for you was that intimidation like factor there, or does working alongside them, uh, in this phase, um, where where they're all as you said, everyone's picking up a shovel, does that kind of like eliminate the 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 starstruck uh factor, and eventually it just you know it's it's Sid Brian and and we're all just like uh you know you know busting ass on this game.
2: Yeah, I think that that was. You know, I guess my own—I was too naive to kind of realize the superstars that they were. Like, you know, for me, like I—I I literally came out of arts going like, you know, this is kind of cool, <laughs> right? Like, I right. didn't set out to be. A, and so, I guess my level of understanding of them uh, made it a little less intimidating. And my, I only got to know them as like it's just Brian and Sid, right, and Jeff. Like, they're—I um, didn't see them as like these, these uh, you know, design superstars, right? That was just not, it didn't really hit me um, at first. And that, and I think that, that I guess that kind of spared me a little bit of that. Um, and I just kind of saw them as like, oh, these guys are, you know, they're just the bosses, right? And um, you know, Sid probably a little more than Brian because Brian was a little closer to my age. Um, not a lot, but a little closer. And so, um, uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't, get much of that um, just because I guess I was
1: probably too naive, most likely. So no, when we come to the the game itself, um, I mean, Gettysburg for me, there's a lot of great design uh, in there, like as, as just like the rules of the game, uh, the way those rules sort of interact. But at the same time, this is a game that is really inseparable from art. Uh, for me like and and like I think the art's always been important in civilization games too but I mean there's a consistency in civilization where like tile you know what I mean eventually civilization is a game that lends itself to you see tile values more than art you see you know unit placement and stats uh, more than like the animation because like that's that's kind of like what matters uh, in terms of like what you're actually looking at to to judge actions but in Sits Gettysburg like everything is communicated through like map art through animation and then through UI design. Um, and so like this, this is a game where when I, when I think about it, like it lives and dies by, you know, the style being both really communicative and like informative about what is happening in the game, but also at the same time, it has to be really pretty because sometimes like putting a lot of information on the screen is really at odds with making something pretty. Um, and so I'm, I just love to talk about the the process of arriving at this, maybe starting with like, what what research and reference was the art team approaching this with? What were the what were the goals?
2: I think the big thing started, like Sid really became enamored with the, I think it was Troiani was the guy's name, the, mm-hmm. the artist that did those Civil War paintings. And so that was always like, this is kind of like our reference, right? Like we really want the kind of they, they were always a part of that process for that period um as sort and of those like are the paintings our, you
1: see on the splash screens yep, uh in yep. the in the game and so those were
2: those were something that we were always looking at as we did it um and so uh i think actually you know that kind of that kind of painterly reference that was always kind of ingrained in us as we were kind of you know looking at what we were making um i, I think influenced our team quite a bit uh, as what we we're gonna do um and I think that kind of weaves through it even the colors that he used and um you know all that sort of kind of makes its way it permeates into the 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 visual threads of the game um starting with the 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 shell screens, the main menus, and then always and then all the way through so um there were big components of it, and something we were you know we looked at a lot of Troyani art, a lot of books and uh that had you know his paintings in it um and so that, that kind of drove most of it. And then just trying to figure out, um, like you're saying, like usually the information that you need to convey on the screen really is always at odds with the visual and, and how you can kind of try to eliminate those. And, and it's really hard when you're dealing with 800 by 600 pixels, <laughs> <It's>, mm-hmm. <laughs> 4k makes it a whole lot easier, 2k. Um, but it's, uh, it definitely, uh, is, is a challenge and, and was on that game. It's just try to, how to, how do you eliminate some of that information, um, and, and kind of make it a little more intuitive and not overwhelming. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was definitely a challenge and it was something we spent a lot of time trying to work on and trying to get, and, um, you know, I got stuck with a, a lot of, a lot of the shell screens and option screens and all that. So I know those Troyani paintings really well. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, it's, it's definitely a challenge. It's hard to do.
1: You know what? We're going to take a quick break and Mm -hmm. then come back uh, after the ads and continue this conversation with uh, with Greg. Uh, So back after this.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh I'm
1: also I'm also curious, you know, Fractus being out there uh in, in Maryland, uh, I always sort of envied folks on the uh, you know the on the East coast, because especially like out in the, on the Maryland DC area, Northern Virginia, um, you can't throw a rock without hitting a civil war battlefield. Uh, and and I'm curious, like, was that proximity leveraged at all during the production or was it, or or was it just kind of like you, you mostly had, uh, historical research that you'd use and, and it wasn't important to necessarily like be getting out there and, 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 and checking out, uh, you know, various battlefields or the way their little museums uh, present information. I'm I'm curious if you if you made use of like, uh, all those historical sites uh, near you.
2: Uh, yeah, we we did absolutely. Um, I think that you know one of the cool things I guess about being in games, and and one of the things I really like about it, as opposed to being an editorial illustrator, was that when you work on a game, you become a student of that subject. Right. So like. Mm-hmm. Um, my first game at Microprose was like European Air War. So I know the difference between all the different, you know, World War II European theater planes that that we had. Um, just learn it because you have to. And so mm-hmm. with Gettysburg, it was the same thing. We rolled I rolled in Gettysburg after that game. And um, you know, we we went to Gettysburg, we went to Antietam, you know, we went to Harper's Ferry, we, you know, watched a bunch of documentaries, we um read a bunch of books. I I read a bunch of Civil War books, Killer Angels and and such, cause you just wanted to kind of understand the subject that you were trying to represent. And so um You know that that was something we absolutely took advantage of, and 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 whatever game it was, whether it was a golf game, whether it's a Star Wars game, like you know you're you're you're, you know you're you're knee deep in Clone Wars, trying to trying to understand everything and and absorb as much information as you can. Uh, Gettysburg was no different. We we went up there several times. We visited the sites. We tried to understand what the landscape looked like and actually visited some of the houses. uh, Took tons of pictures. of, of the different materials that were used. Cause again, all those, a lot of those are, some of those are preserved and still, still exist. Um, and then tried to kind of, you know, make sure we were being true to the historical nature of the game. Um, which was always something that, that really fascinating about development, right? Like I've, I'm a little bit of a history buff. I always loved, loved history in school. And so like, that's something that, um, if I can kind of, you know, sink my teeth into that and have that kind of influence what we did. It was always fun. But as a as a team, we all did it. We went we went together. Like it was like a road trip. We'd all just jump in each other cars and and go up eighty three and, and uh and and visit some of the different sites around here. So that was uh that was something we took a lot of advantage of actually.
1: I didn't realize you worked on European air war. That's another uh, mm-hmm. one of the last like mind blowing Flight Sims, I guess for me, which was because I think that was the one where they just said the hell with it, we're gonna like put as many aircraft in the scenarios as humanly possible. Um, and so I remember it had like I think still an unsurpassed record of like, yeah, we can have two hundred aircraft uh, in huge dogfight and never see anything like it. Um, but it was a hell of a way for MicroProse Sims to sort of be winding down. Um. I am, so, and feel free, like, to explain this uh, as if to, like, a complete amateur who knows nothing. Because I'm actually actually really interested in the tools used then uh, versus, like, now. And and what the role of an artist is on a game uh, in 1997 versus, uh, you know, in the mid-2010s. Uh particularly mm-hmm. because I mean this is a game that is uh like it's it's sprite-based, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's extensive uh pixel art. And and so I'm curious if you can talk about the the process uh you go through and the tools you use to go from like concepting to building the stuff in the game. You sort of mentioned that you had to redo a ton of work uh because you got the resolution uh to the wrong spec. Uh so I was wondering if you just talk through like Um, back then, what is a, what is a game artist doing? What, what, what is important for you to get really good at, uh, then versus, you know, what you're kind of being called on to do around the time you're making XCOM.
2: Well, that, that period between like 95 and 97, 98 was when things were really shifting from like, not only were we going for like floppy disks to CDs, right. But, but when we were moving from 2d pixel art, like you were using a tool like animator pro or D paint, um, to make your art. Like I remember, you know, my first jobs were all 2D stuff, right? It was just the uh, and and a lot of it drawing with a mouse, um, and um, uh, and then going as we were making that transition, um, 3D Studio Release 4 was out, and that was a one of the first 3D programs. Um, and uh, you know, you you actually had, it was all like the keyframer, like the animation tool, was like a totally separate program than the modeling, and it was it was pretty cumbersome and there wasn't a ton you could do uh necessarily um you know polygons were super expensive and and all the engines were mm-hmm. proprietary like you know all the flight sims at micropros were proprietary game engines 3D engines um and then so you, but you were in that transition phase between that and I think remember like as we moved into the new building during Gettysburg um uh that 3D Studio Max had just really kind of put all the tools into one program um, and so we were moving from a bit of a 2d understanding to a 3d basis so um, we would build all the buildings we'd build the characters we'd animate them and just render them out as sprites so it was all really 2d work um but it was all like understanding the the 3d modeling part of it and it was stuff where you know we were uh it wasn't anything like the 3D stuff you do now um in that it was just really primitive it was it was you know you're trying to get the essence of it and then you kind of paint over it and um you know finish it uh once you once you gotten the render out for the consistencies like all the little buildings we did all the trees um i remember dave and score doing all the characters the the marching soldiers and like you know just building the horrific characters, but then when they render out, they were fine, right? Like they never would have met today's standards, but for you know what we are doing, um, they were fine. And that was that was pretty much the that same process up until we got the pirates. Everything was this 2D, 3D, you know, started with 3D, but it ended up in the game as sprites. Um and then with pirates we shifted to, to 3D engine um where we were making three assets where those three D constraints, you know, we couldn't be as reckless as we were before, like you know, you had to seam everything up and it – you had to think about how you would actually, you know, put textures on them um, and not just slapping stuff on because, again, it didn't – performance didn't matter because you're going to render it out to make a sprite. You know, that all changed when you went to – when we went to Pirates and we were behind the curve on that. You know, we were we were pixel art for a really long time, um, which is why it's always funny to see everybody who's so into pixel art now. I'm <laughs> like, man, I'm not going back ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, don't, you don't have much nostalgia for it? <laughs> no,
2: you guys, no, there's, none of those people suffered through it. So it was it was way harder back then. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, it's cool to see. I can appreciate really good pixel art, trust me. But um, yeah, I've got no desire to go back and do it myself. But, um, but yeah, so then we made that kind of transition where, you know, like the tools became a bit easier. And, and being an artist became a little bit less about knowing – uh, being a technician and knowing what buttons to push and, and, and the tools just became more intuitive. And so it becomes more, more sculpting, a little more art friendly. Um, you know, and, and now there are so many different avenues to like, you know, do tutorials and communities that you can touch on, uh, to get help and, and guidance back then there, there, there were no, there was no art station. There wasn't really much to go get, um, inspiration from at the time. And so you're just learning from how good the people were around you, which is why I think the those teams, it all comes down to the teams and how how special those groups of people were because they were the people that were helping helping you grow um at the same time. So um and it would made it so special, you know, but it's just different now. It's just it's so much easier and the fidelity is so much better. You can make I mean I don't want to diminish how it's just it's not easier in that like People don't work hard. I mean, it's, it, it is really hard, but there, it's just more accessible, um, uh, to, to make great art now than it was then. It was just a, it was a harder, a harder road to learn than it is at this point. And the tools are, were a bit more obtuse. Um, it's, it's, it's a much, uh, better environment than it was back then.
1: To a degree. Cause, cause the other thing, when I think about like 1990s PC gaming, um, like I know that video games are always sort of a medium that chases uh tech specs uh to an extent but like you know for me it's the pace of I recently built a new PC uh for for games but prior to that I want to say I, I had the same PC for, effectively for uh 5 or 6 years uh right and like that would have been unthinkable to me in the 1990s where like it, you know, within 18 months you were starting to not be sure if your computer could run new stuff that was coming out. Uh, and I'm curious how, like when, a, when, a, when a team is like working on a game like Foraxis, how much is hardware sort of the thing hovering there as your chief constraint, Uh, performance being the thing you have to consider versus um, just readability. Cause I think the funny thing about playing Gettysburg right now is it's a very readable game uh, in terms of like, you know, the regiments are have very clear shape, how they are performing uh, looks pretty good. It only gets really chaotic when it should, which is when all hell is breaking loose and lines are getting crossed, et cetera. But beyond that, you know where a unit is standing. You can read what kind of terrain you're putting them on. Um, and I'm curious, like, is that in part a happy accident of the fact that you're kind of limited in terms of how much fidelity you can toss in there? Um, or is it more a like even then you, you're, you still have to be considering how does all of the scan? Um, yeah? I'm just I, I'd, I'd love to talk through sort of the uh, the style versus the uh, hardware, um, you know, tension that, that you you dealt with.
2: Well, I mean it's definitely that that's that um the simplicity, right? Like it definitely um in some ways is an advantage, right? Like there's only so much you can do, so you've got to make it readable. Um and in some places it was really your friend. Um I don't think we ever were very driven by uh tech specs um up until XCOM, I would say. Um maybe railroads. Uh, but I think that at that point it was, we were always very much worried about like, what's the low end machine, Mm -hmm. um, and making sure it was, and it worked. And I don't, you know, I think with, with XCOM, you know, I was very concerned about making a game that rewarded people with a good machine, but didn't punish you for not having one. So I've always been kind of like, I want to make sure we make a really pretty, really, you know, good experience visually, but also something that scales um that doesn't leave anybody behind and that was always something we we're always trying to um and one of the things, the really great things about frax was always trying to make sure that people that didn't have a great system could still experience our games um but that being said like i'm i'm not not really a fan of chasing the um you know just just like you know tech for tech's sake i think you know great art is great art and it's going to hold up and look look good um regardless for a long period of time uh, rather than the thing that chased the the specific tech benchmark of you know 2022 and, and 2025 looks like a game from 2022. Um, you know when you look at a game like uh, Team Fortress 2, right? Um, and it's just a beautiful art direction. It's a gorgeous game. Uh, it still looks gorgeous now, right? And it, and it it isn't using any of the bells and whistles um, that that you have available at the moment. And it it only falls apart a little bit with you know, you see facets in the in the models now um but i think great art you know good art direction can transcend the the time and the tech a bit and that's something that you know really always tried to do um for the most part and i think um you know again when we when we hit that that era you know coming out of railroads coming out of uh civrev uh into into xcom where it was like you know we wanted to make sure that like if if somebody was reviewing our game they were most likely reviewing on a really good machine and we wanted it to look great. Like nobody, nobody <laughs> reviews our game on a, on a, you know, six year old laptop. And so we wanted to make sure that, um, we did hit all, uh, you know, bells and whistles that, that, that reinforced the, the, both the design and the, and the visual direction. Um, but also it was scalable for people that, that had a, a lower, a lower spec machine. Um, so that was, that was something we always looked a lot at and and really tried to make sure that we were, Addressing and, and and I still do, you know. Again, I think, I think art direction and 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 good art is it outweighs that the whatever the hot tech is of the moment necessarily.
1: Um, this is an aside, but I I do kind of wonder about that myself. Um, you know, when I think about the things that are promoted right now as major features when it comes to fidelity uh and the look of a game certainly for me i would say for for a while now it's felt very much like we're in an era of diminishing returns uh in terms of like what what raw tech and hardware power can achieve um and i'm curious from like a and and like art director's standpoint are there (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm just curious if there's any features that you're like, this is complicated my life and it doesn't do a damn thing uh, <laughs> in terms of like bringing artistic vision to vision of life. Uh, but but I but I am actually more broadly broadly interested in that in that notion that I think there's a lot of uh, certainly the way this hardware is marketed and a lot of like the the hype that comes up around like new consoles or, or new video cards. There's a lot of ah, well, this rendering technique will make mm-hmm. games look better than ever, but I think you know the fact that we can still talk about like Sid's Gettysburg* having this really like beautiful style that still speaks to us kind of gives the game away, right? Which is that it's it's all about like execution, uh, and I'm and I'm curious like is you know in, in your role has do you ever find yourself like having to fight the battle against like Hey, why should why, we don't necessarily need to use like ray tracing, for instance, uh, to like there's no reason for us to do that? Uh, just it just like raises the bar of who can play our game. Um, I'm curious if there's any if I'm curious if that's a thing you have to sort of uh talk people down from uh when it comes to the graphics chase and if there's any if there's any techniques that you're just that are more have been more of a headache uh than, than a help uh to you as an ad.
2: There's not uh, there's not a ton that I've seen that, that did that, right? So, I mean, there, there can be some things where it's like you can go a little off the deep end, but it's it's always trying to look back on, like, what, what's your goal? What are you trying to do? And trying to keep that wrangled in. The same thing with game design, right? Like, you don't mm-hmm. want to go chasing, you know, Elden Ring because they did something really cool. So, now we're going to change our game design. Um, art's a little bit the same way. Um, you know, I think that there's we're – we've been chasing realism for years. Um and I think physically based rendering now is one of those things that's kind of uh we've gotten to the point now where we're we're kind of at the Renaissance with games. like we can make them look real. We can make it look photo real, but why? like why are you doing it? What's the goal of it what's what do you how does that reinforce the game design? How does that reinforce the player experience um and what they come away with? and so uh you know i I, I spend a lot of time looking looking more at that. And, and kind of, you know, more of the why, like with our games, uh, you know, you, you've tended to need to do some sort of stylization for readability and clarity. A lot of stuff you picked up on Gettysburg, right? Same things went into XCOM as well. And as you start looking at it, like the game, the way the game is presented starts giving you some of the art direction. It's like, right. You know, like you, you want to make characters that have slightly elongated limbs and, you know, um, so that when they, when they, you get better gesture reads from when the camera's further away, but still hold up when the camera's low. And so you start trying to measure a lot of that stuff, um, you know, and, and how that works and then, and then what the tech does, you know, whatever the new graphics feature is, does that, does that enable you to do that better or worse? Um, but we're at this point now where, uh, you know, we can make materials that look real. We can make the lighting respond the way it does in reality. We're not faking it right we're not we're not trying to like paint in highlights and um shadows into into characters right because they now they now the materials just they they respond as they would in real life now that you're at that point now i think the question is an artist as a game designer as a game developer is what what do you do with it um and so um you've got that information now you can take it and now that you can make it real now what are you going to do with it and so we tend to look at it a lot like that and how how that how that read reinforces the game design we can we can and we want the player to feel um, you can turn things up you can turn them down you can you can heighten the color um, you, can, you can do a lot with lighting at this point um, you can go beyond what real is and, and to achieve a particular look um, and i think the biggest thing now is that, that you're going to start seeing like these downstream disciplines that that people experience in games vfx audio um, Animation—you're going to start seeing these things now increase in fidelity too, in a way that they haven't experienced before. Um, because it's not, to me, it's not really about polygons anymore uh, or triangles. It's it's more about like all these other things now, kind of adding to that experience that never, you know, you didn't have enough memory to do it, you didn't have enough power to do it, uh, bandwidth um, on, on on the production end to make it happen. Now those things have become a lot easier or becoming easier. and so for me the next frontier in, in gaming is kind of tapping into all those um, elements to make the player experience even better beyond just the the, the like you know character models and environment models uh, and lighting but going going beyond that and so and even lighting becoming a much bigger thing but but um, all those kind of things that are a little further downstream for most people, are going to get more more attention, more love, and and, and again, I think going to provide for a way cooler experience visually and, and just more immersion for the player um, down the road. So, to me, that's the next frontier.
1: Um, so, obviously, there's, there's Sid Meier's Gettysburg, and then there was Sid Meier's Antietam, but as I understand it, that's effectively an outsourced project. Uh, that is Breakaway Games. Uh, I think they went on to make a couple Napoleonics games uh, off like off of that engine. Um, And I am kind of curious, like on the one hand, it's obvious like that Fraxis was moving on to Alpha Centauri uh, at the, at the same time. uh, That that is, that is the next thing uh, up, but I am kind of interested in the fact that like, you know, it's mid to late nineties. It looks like Gettysburg did, was pretty successful. Um, you know, it was war games were still a fairly mainstream PC gaming, uh, genre. And I'm, I've always been sort of interested why access themselves didn't end up following up more in the space, uh, why it was sort of handed off to Breakaway and like why they, you know, why access never went back, uh, honestly.
2: Well, we were kind of a boutique shop, right? And mm-hmm. back then when EA, um, funded us, right? Our first fu- part, first publishing partner was EA. Um, they they were very interested at the times prior to Sims. Like they were very interested in like these smaller, you know, more boutique-like kind of experiences that Sid was sort of interested in making. Um, and so it was a very different time then for for them as a publisher and for us uh, as a developer. And we were set up in a way where, um, you know, Sid, Sid likes to make – a thing and then move on. Like he's not a, there's even, yes, there's Civ, you know, and, and we eventually made a, but he's only designed
1: the two, right? But yeah, he, he really,
2: um, you know, he likes to, to do these just really different, discrete things. And, and they may have some, you know, deviation of something else he's made, but, but it was never a thing where we really were planning on going back. We were set up in a way where we were going to be a two project studio where, You know, Sid would make a game. Brian would make Brian would start prototyping, and the art team would ping pong over to work on Alpha Centauri while Sid took some time off and prototyped the next thing. And so we were supposed to just bounce back and forth between each game. Um, And that was how we originally set up, which made a whole lot of sense back then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, staff wise. Um, And then I think you know we were we got out of out of Gettysburg, and Jeff was a big he was he was. Definitely. He's a history fan. And, and I think Jeff just didn't really want to let it go. I think he wanted to do more. Um, But we were all kind of moving on to Alf Centauri and, and Sid was kind of, you know, already kind of like, you know, in the rearview mirror. He's moving on to the next thing. He, he does that. I mean, he, he, he works really fast for a period of time. And then I think he, he like, he's ready to do something else. And um, that's part of his genius and, and part of what makes working with him kind of fun. Cause it's like, man, like you are holding on for dear life. Cause when he starts going as an artist, you're just trying to keep up. Like you're just trying to keep feeding the machine. Um, but, um, but I, I don't think it was ever something that we really wanted to go back in. And so, you know, Brian had, had Alf Centauri started and Sid was starting to play around with what eventually ended up being golf. Um, and Jeff, it, it turned into something that he wanted to kind of take on and so, you know, he partnered up with some of our old friends over at Breakaway to make Antietam. And, and that, you know, had a little bit of involvement from me and a couple other people just to kind of like, you know, help get it out the door. Mm-hmm. But it was also um, our first attempt at like – Jeff wanted to self-publish back then, right? Before it was really a thing. Like he was yeah. like, we're going to self-publish this. Um, and so, it was, it, was a, it was an interesting learning uh, process for us as a studio – um, but it was also something I think Jeff was just really passionate about and both Sid and Brian had moved on to, you know, the things that were in in their, you know, in front of them. And Jeff was sort of, you know, still really interested in it. So that's kind of how um my understanding of how, you know, Gettysburg kind of went down, um, you know, from my 24 year old perspective uh at the time, what I saw happening and um and and just is how we were set up. But we we still had some involvement. We worked with breakaway a bit on it. Um you know, here and there, but they did the bulk of the work um, to get it done.
1: I'm cu- I am curious from your standpoint. Was there kind of bittersweet quality to like? I know I know that like you know you start. Th- there's obviously like the you know the Pirates remake. Uh, there's there's stuff like railroads, but after a point, like a lot of strategy studios either end up kind of dying out or being sort of marginalized to like the niche hobbyist space. Or you eventually kind of have to transform into something close to a AAA studio, um, and I am curious, like you know, when I, when I look at sort of the, uh, er, like first, like you know, four or five years of For Access, it's a really diverse portfolio uh there's all kinds of games that are that are coming out and i I am curious from your standpoint someone's there at the start and then ends up seeing it seeing the studio through the period where it's like you know two parallel but large multi-year projects uh going like did you end up like having a preference like is there is is there party that wishes you go back to like the 11 month cycle just so you could see a thing from end to end and get it out there? Or does like the increase in scope and resources pay off in terms of like what you're able to do? I'm, I'm curious. Like having seen, having lived both lives uh, and, <laughs> and gone through like uh, the pitch and production process. Uh, I'm curious, like which ended up being more fun.
2: wow that is a, I've never been asked that question but that's one of the best questions I've ever been asked. I, I, man, like there's something to be said about that. Like 11 month sort of like you're in, you're out. Um, it's got a, this sort of lifespan that, that is, um, electric, right. And then you get into a, a project that can take, you know, potentially three, four or five years and it, and it ends up, it, it's a much more lumbering, not that you're not moving fast, but it's a, it's just, it's, it's a, it's just a, a longer lead time. Um, you know, you can do much cooler stuff in that period, right? Like your Mm -hmm. ability to actually do, uh, do things, um, to a higher quality and, um, really explore what you're making and make sure that it's, um, fun and accessible. Like you've got that, it's not a, it's not a foot race. Like, like those early games were, were definitely like, again, hold on for dear life. Like, you're just trying to like, you know, fill the need. Like we need, you know and number of buildings like we need this house this house and this house in gettysburg and you had to like just man get them done and um there's it's a different pace um and they they're each special um you know i would man it, but that it's it's hard to it's really hard to that that team mechanic though that that team part of that 11 month cycle with that small team um you know, I love the bigger teams I've had, but the, that, those, they were so connected. Um, you know, like they, they were, it, it, there was, it was impossible to not, you know, know everybody on a really intimate level with, an, with a 12 person team, right? You're, you're yeah. just going to, you're going to see everybody's bad, bad days and good days. And, um, you know, in ways that with a hundred person team, it, it starts, you can lose some of that. Um you know, and it's, so it's, 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 man, that that's a great question. It's, it's hard to say. They're just very different animals. Um, uh, there's parts of each one that I really appreciate. Um, you know, and it's trying to capture some of that feel, I think in, in, in like what we're doing now, like it's, you know, we, we've it's definitely not an 11 month scope. Right. And, 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 but trying to kind of capture that sort of, team atmosphere and and kind of that that kind of electricity of those small teams and try to try to somehow translate that into a you know a triple A environment right that that's it's it's hard part of me thinks you can do it and, and that's what we're trying to do i think we're we're doing a pretty good job of trying to kind of capture that energy and that fun um and that sort of team team environment um but yeah, like that that's probably the part of it that I think I liked the most was just um not so much what the output was, um, but that magical feel of the of the studio environment at that size. Um was pretty special.
1: Well, and that's and that actually sort of reminds me of something else you said, which was like the fact that you know, you, you stop short of calling it like a crunch culture, uh, but that like everyone is so bought in on the game and like loved working on their on the on the piece of their art that contributed to the 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 greater work um and this is one of those things where i, I think to an extent there's a couple there's generation elements to this as well which is i think you know a lot of like folks who are senior in organizations do remember a period where it was you know it was a dozen people and we're kind of new yep. like you know, what speed they're moving at, how everyone was doing, et cetera. And also everyone's, you know, young and and, and hungry in this industry. Um, but then, I mean, so many people who come from that background and managing kind of rough shops to work at uh, because, you know, on the one hand, you know, you, you sort of come up, came up thinking, yeah, I worked, I worked a lot of late nights and sp- spent a lot of time polishing on my own time. and, I enjoyed it and it was it, it was good stuff to do. Um, but I but, and then I think the, you know, the the other part of that as well is. The team dynamics also change where it's no longer a few artists or a few animators. It is an entire department and the entire project management flow uh, has to has to change. And I think that's that's the other part of this that that I wonder about is on the one hand, I think a lot of us would prefer the really excited dynamic workspace of like we are breaking new ground here we're solving interesting problems and i'm 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 like have a lot of creative space to play but i do kind of wonder like the modern game industry where like people are a little more siloed off like people have narrower roles can that exist and be healthy or at a certain point does it kind of have to become more professionally managed and more huh? uh, you know, more carefully managed in terms of workload. Cause, cause I, cause I do think like if it's, if I, if my name's going to be up there as like a lead artist or like a uh, designer on a small project, hell yeah. Like, you know, that's gonna be my signature on this thing. That's, that's great. I'd probably feel differently about it. If I'm going to be, you know, someone whose name appears in the credits for 30 seconds for not even 30 for 10 in 10 seconds uh, for 10 seconds, like five minutes into the credits.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the that whole part of it, it's, you know, look, I've worked on projects that were not the same as Gettysburg, right? And so, um, you know, where that was, again, I was learning, I was doing it because I wanted to do it because I wasn't, it's really hard when you're an artist. Um, And and I when I use that word, I'm talking about a developer, right? Uh, whether you're a programmer uh, or a visual person or audio person or whatever, it's really hard to turn that off. Like I go home and I think about what I'm working on. I chop wood and I think about what I'm, you know, working on. You know, I cut my lawn and I think about what I'm working on. And so um I do most of my problem solving there, which when I was if I was smarter when I was younger, I would have realized like going outside and actually doing some manual work while I was thinking about it. I mean I solve 90% of my things when I'm not actually sitting here at yeah. my desk. Um but, I, but when you're young, you don't realize that. And again, I fall back on all those experiences, like all that time I spent learning. Um, I fall back on that daily. Um, but again, it was a different thing. It was like, you know, just trying to get better at what I was doing or because I was excited about what I was doing. And it's a very different feel. Um, you know, I was never in a rush to go home and work on personal stuff. Like for me, my job was my personal stuff. Like I was just excited about what I was working on. Um, uh, yeah. You know, and as you move into that, you know, you're, you're managing a bigger team and a department and a, and a larger project. Um, I think you start to be conscious of how each person is wired and some people are wired that way and some people aren't. And frequently I'm the guy saying, go home, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, it's, it'll be here tomorrow. Um, because I do believe an awful lot in, you know, trying to, as you manage people, right, that you want these sort of wavelengths that stay kind of small. Mm-hmm. But when you go up, there's going to be a dip below. And so you're going to have to pay for it somewhere. And so if you can try to keep everybody more on this sort of thing, it's going to, you know, where it's a shorter, a shorter wavelength. Um, you're gonna have a healthier team, you're gonna have people who are doing better work, you're gonna have people that are more excited about what they're doing. You really, you really wanna avoid those, those upswings because there is a, there, there's no way you just come out of that and flatten out. There's gonna be a dip. And as a manager, if you ask people to do that, you have to understand that like, Man, you, you guys are gonna have to go home for a few days and just chill. Um, you know, because you gotta recover from that process both physically and mentally. Um, and so I think that's something that hopefully as an industry we're getting better at. Um, that's something that having, again, having been through cycles where it was fun and cycles where it wasn't fun. Um, you know, um, and 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 places where I wasn't the person that was the manager for it. So I kind of was subjected to it um, it made me sensitive to kind of both sides of it. And so I really, I, you know, for me, it's important that people kind of like, again, like you're no good. If you're exhausted, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to be as creative. You're, you know, you want people to go home and come back fresh every day. Um, because you're gonna get a better product, like long term, you're gonna get a better product. I mean, there's, there's short periods of time where, you know, this job ends up being a job and there's stuff that you got to do. That's hard. But like, you know, as a manager, if you ever have to ask somebody that, you need to be really aware of 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 the, the the downside of it, and that you've got to pay for that downside um, for people to keep them to keep them fresh, keep them happy, and keep them healthy. Um, you know, physically and mentally. And so, that's something that you know it's it's really hard, and and a lot of people struggle with it. Um, but again, it, it's so easy to fall into to asking people to do more than they they physically can, um, and at the end of the day, you're not necessarily getting a better product. I think a lot of the products where I you know killed myself not because I wanted to be better because I had to kill myself um I don't think I you know I don't think that they were necessarily better at the end of it I think you know if I just if somebody had told me to go home and 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 get a nap and come back tomorrow um I, I probably wouldn't have listened but if I had listened I think I probably would have uh I probably would have done better work myself so um it's something that that I think uh, I try to be cognizant of uh every day and and just in how i how I approach what we're doing here and and um you know managing creative people and and kind of working with creative people. everybody is a bit different you know um and you have to kind of manage them all all uh all differently but treat them all fairly if that makes sense um and kind of know be able to tell when people are kind of burning and 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 when they're overdoing it if if for some reason they are. And, and just kind of try to try to counteract it. Um, it's a tough business like that. Cause again, it's, it's so married to who you are and, and, and making art is again, like I said, I'm referring to programming when I say that too, and every other aspect of it, but it's, it's um, it's not a science. And so, and people get invested and, it, and there's a few, you have to tell, go home. Um,
1: and right. uh, you know, well, and then there's, yeah, I mean, like I, um, you know, Patrick Klepek, uh, you know, our, our uh, reporter here, I worked with him for years, but like he, he hates it when I'm uh up late doing work, um, drives mm-hmm. him, drives him nuts because he's like, you shouldn't be doing that. One, it's a bad example to set. Uh, and two, it's like you shouldn't be like like your routine should not be you're your wrapping up work at three in the morning. Yep. Um, And that's true. And it's it's good advice. But at the same time, unfortunately, that tends to be my golden hour sometimes when like this is when it's pretty, like I will be able to do more uh, from 11 to 3 a.m. Than like if I worked a week of like nine to five Um, and that's and that's a tricky thing to navigate as well in like creative spaces uh, where it's like there's that there's that sort of nuanced difference between is this person like starting to embrace like kind of toxic work habits versus like this is just their method. Um, And sometimes it's both, which is really tricky where it's like this isn't this isn't good. We probably need to find a different a different mode. Um, but it's, uh, that, that's a trickier part too. Cause like, yeah, I'm definitely, I sort of wear the two hats of like, yeah, we should be keeping more regular hours and having like lots of downtime. And then on the other hand, I'm also like, well, you know, it's, uh, two in the morning on a Sunday night. Now's the time to get a lot of work done. Um, and that can be productive too. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask about, which was, which is like, it seems like it, it, it is harder to make games like this than it looks, is is my assumption, because, like, you know, the, the War Games space, uh, all of this, like something like Sid Meier's Gettysburg, seems like it should be achievable on smaller budgets with smaller teams. And we've seen attempts to do that. Uh, some of the people who worked on the Breakaway games ended up making a series called Take Command, um, which was sort of an even more, like, War game, uh, like version of Sid Meier's Gettysburg, um, and those are good games. I I, I like them a lot, but at the, at the same time, like I I think there's a reason beyond nostalgia that like Sid's Gettysburg sort of looms large uh, for people. And then in twenty years, twenty five at this point, it's still not really been replaced uh, for for a lot of folks that like. You know, either people worked in that vein and maybe overcomplicated it, uh, trying to make it more like wargamey, or they sort of approach it and they actually sort of streamline maybe a little bit too much. Um, but, you know, a lot of times when I, when I see like projects discussed, like, you know, it's budget, headcount, and time are kind of the key resources and, you know, you have to appropriately scope within that. But obviously, like, there's an X factor here, right? In terms of like, there's a lot of games that were appropriately scoped and resourced probably for working in a, in a space like this that don't end up being particularly memorable. And I'm I'm curious, is it, is it just the X factor of like, you know, the cocktail of great designers who are, who've come through for access or is it, more is it? Is it more than that? Is there is there something else that happens at Fraxis or happened around this game that leads to uh you know a really a really special game uh that holds up twenty five years later?
2: I mean, I think I think it. Well, a it's harder than everybody thinks it is. Like everybody kind of it's funny. Everybody underestimates what's involved in – you know, making a game like this and, and, or, you know, even a game like XCOM, it's like they're all, oh, it's, you know, like that should be easy. Like, yeah, okay. It's yeah, there's no shortage of, of people right? who are
1: like, I'm making XCOM.
2: And, 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 you know, and I think that's, that's interesting. It's like, you know, like, cause, cause it's, you know, you know, the real question would be like, I'm, 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 I'm not making X count, right? Like, like if you're just trying to catch it, like you've already set yourself up for a problem, right? So anybody who's doing that should, you know, it should be more of like, you know, like that's in the rearview mirror. We're, we're, we've, we've studied that we're going past it. Um, I think a lot of people are just trying to catch it. And I think, um, on some levels, I think, you know, if there's a game like Gettysburg, people might just be trying to catch it. I think that, um, the X factor, you know, certainly, you know, you know the designers, Sid, Brian. Uh, you have had a history of great designers there, um, but it's a it's it's not only that, but it's I think the the surrounding cast of of really good developers, right? Again, like if we weren't playing that game every day at two o'clock, and if we weren't, you know, creating feedback and everybody contributing, right? Like it's not that fun. And so I think doing that and that that team mentality of kind of you know rallying around, you know, again, a person like Sid making this game. Um, you know, it allows it, it enables Sid to fail fast. Um mm-hmm. and that's the thing. Like you 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 don't want to be you wanna be ruthless about removing things that aren't fun and evaluating and making sure that that what you're doing is fun. And if it isn't fun, why? And if you if you need to cut it, you cut it and you change course. And I think that's one of the things that 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 he, um, along with most designers of Foraxis, have been and the studio itself had been very supportive of, right? Like they've always um, been been good about being ruthless when it comes to cutting things that don't work um, and doing it quickly for most cases. And so that's the hard part about development, like just in a nutshell. And so, um, uh, you know, so so again, a game like Gettysburg, you, you had to make it fun. You had to, you know, cut the bad parts fast, especially with 11 months. And um You know, those sort of things couldn't linger, but the fact that we played it literally every day, um, and everybody gave feedback on it, it it accelerated that process and made it a lot easier. Um, and when you get everybody bought in on it, like that's that magic part that just, you just can't, there's not a, there's not an equation for it. Um, there's not a scheduling task for it. There's no way to account for that. Um, other than having really great people and communicating really well and being honest, about what's fun and what's not fun, because you can lie to yourself all you want, but when it goes out into the you know into the world, if it's not fun, you're gonna hear it's not fun you're gonna find out because it's not
1: gonna sell Can you find that in a project that doesn't start out fun because that's the that's the other part right like it sounds like Gettysburg was kind of hitting on all cylinders from the start, but I'm curious like is it is game development one of those things where like you kind of know uh like what like what trajectory you're on? Like, I'm, I'm curious, can something start out being like, wow, this isn't fun and we're not enjoying working on this. Can, like, can those be turned around to the point where at the end everyone's like, we nailed it and it was, it was a great experience.
2: I I don't, man, it's hard if you don't start fun. Like if you don't have a a compelling idea, like it's kind of hard to get buy-in, you know, to get to the point where it's fun. Or where you can even evaluate it. So if you if you don't have an idea, a concept that's um, intriguing enough to get the the team around you excited enough to try it, it man, it's hard to start out that way. I don't think I've ever been on a project that wasn't at least at concept fun. Um, You know, partway through it, yeah, (laughs) they're not always fun. But um, at at the onset, um, you know. Yeah, they're they're usually you usually aren't at that point where it's where you're struggling that badly. Like, it's, it's, there's usually a um, you usually have some sort of inclination that that your idea is is going to be at least something you want to explore. Um, but again, we've done uh, we've done projects where they you know they started out and it was like oh on paper this sounds like it's going to be fun and within a few weeks like this isn't good. And you just, you just got to know enough when to cut, like what, or whether you've just got to push through a valley, that's the tricky part, right? Is that you know, are you just in a valley or are, is this just not fun? Um, and deciding whether or not to push through or cut, um, that's, that's the really, really hard part. Um, and I've been lucky enough to work with some people that were really good at that. So Sid's usually very good about evaluating that part of it. And, um. And Brian as well, both, both those guys in particular, we're, we're, we're terribly good at that. So.
1: All right. Uh, well, I think we'll, we'll call that a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. If you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at Waypoint on Facebook and YouTube uh, at Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Greg, where should people be keeping a lookout for word on what you're up to? dig uh, um,
2: yeah, follow me on Twitter at Greg Furch or uh, Bit Reactor. Are both on Twitter and uh also on Facebook. So
1: yeah. All right. Uh well, thanks so much for joining us today and traveling with us down memory lane. Uh so as I mentioned at the top of the show, our waypoint 101 on Sid Meier's Gettysburg is in full swing. I took Patrick uh on a tour of war games from the period, including a longer look at a very different kind of contemporary uh war game from that period, John Tiller's Battleground Gettysburg. Uh Uh, Ren and I also checked out more of the Confederate scenarios uh, for Sid Meier's Gettysburg to see what life is like for the attacking side, and we looked at some games that exist in Gettysburg's Long Shadow. Um, All these streams are made possible by our Waypoint Plus subscribers, and for our subscribers, be sure and listen to the premium feed to hear our deeper dive on what we think about Sid Meier's Gettysburg after all these years. Sign up at waypointplus.com to support our streams and get access to our premium podcasts, uh, for now, we are calling time on uh, this episode. We will talk again soon. I don't know when the schedule for these things are going up, so I'm kind of hedging hedging my bets. Uh, but the point is, uh, whatever you do, fuck capitalism, go home.